You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. If you haven't already, grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Um, and as you do that, I'm just going to open in, in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light upon our paths, and a strength to our lives. Take us and use us to love and serve all people in the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I know that uh, some of us are probably big readers, you know, like to, like to read, always have a book on the go. Others of us probably haven't read a book since high school, and even then, it was probably questionable. Um, in general, I would describe uh, myself as a, as a reader. Um, it does tend to ebb and flow a little bit for me, but I usually do have a book or three on the go at one time, even if I'm not picking one up every night. And every now and again, um, those of us who are readers will know this experience, every now and again you come across a book that um, you, really, you really just are captivated by. You go through at a faster than normal pace right? Um, something about the storyline or the, the content or the author's writing style really captures you. And one of those books for me was Nabil Qureshi's Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's a, an autobiographical piece where he relays his journey uh, from Islam to Christianity. And I recall finding that book uh, particularly compelling the whole way through, not only because of the content, but just because of his, his writing style and his way of communicating. Uh, I remember immediately from, like, right from the introduction being captivated um, by his methodical and honest tone. Uh, In particular, I recall a passage from that introduction to his book where he was really upfront about the genre of book that he was writing and the kind of implications that that genre had on the style that he was going to write with. This is what he said. A note on narrative biography. Since we have entered the digital age, it is unfortunately and increasingly true that people exact inappropriately stringent standards on narrative biographies. By its very nature, a narrative biography must take certain liberties with the story that it shares. Please do not expect camera-like accuracy. That is not the intent of this book, and to meet such standards, it would have to be a 22-year-long video, most of which would bore even my own mother to tears. A few conversations actually represent uh, multiple meetings condensed into one. In some instances, stories are displaced in the timeline to fit the topical categorization. In other instances, people who were present in the conversation were left out of the narrative for the sake of clarity. All these devices are normal for narrative biographies. They are in fact normal for human mnemonics. Please read this book and the narrative biographies it references accordingly. For me, for some reason, that passage might be the most memorable passage in his book. Um, He calmly and clearly explains why, although at certain points his account is going to take some liberties, it is nonetheless a faithful, accurate, and valuable representation of his story. He was simply declaring right up front that he was going to communicate in a style that was appropriate to the genre and to the purpose of his book. And as I was reminded of that passage in his introduction for whatever reason this week, I, thi- I was thinking that if, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could have predicted modern objections 
to their gospel writings, um, to their historicity, to their accuracy, and to their value, they might have put a similar caveat at the beginning of their works. Because just like Nabil's book, when we read the gospels, we're dealing with narrative biographies, and they're first century ones at that. This genre of literature isn't always con concerned with providing a perfectly exact chronological account of the details. But that doesn't mean that these texts aren't faithful, accurate, and valuable. This is just a function of the genre that we have before us. And this morning, we come to a passage in Mark, chapter 2, verse 18 through 3, verse 6, um, where this is definitely one of the cases where we can't read it as sort of like this happened, and then right away this happened, and then this happened. These stories here probably don't fall in chronological order. Really here and in chapter two in general, Mark seems to be presenting a redacted set of stories or sayings from various points in Jesus' ministry, and he's put them side by side because of their thematic connection rather than their chronology. We aren't precisely sure when or where these things happened. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, I just find it kind of interesting. Like, but second of all, these, these things have been, um, and recognizing these things, have actually been a part of my journey over the years of understanding what, it, like, what this book is that we have in front of us, why we study it every week, and why we can trust it despite the objections of many of our modern friends. But third, I actually think that some of these tidbits of the um, textual details of the Gospels and Scripture in general, I think that they're actually intensely practical when we come to our own personal study of Scripture. Like sometimes we need these little reminders of how this book was put together and the genre of literature that we're dealing with because it will inform how we read it and what we learn from it. If we don't know what we're looking at, it can be easy to miss the point. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, when I was preaching on a passage in Mark chapter 1, I commented that Mark doesn't typically uh, explain himself very much throughout his gospel. He doesn't add a whole lot of commentary throughout his work. And we talked about how one tool that we can use to interpret what's going on in Mark and to figure out what his point is, is to actually picture ourselves in the story. We try to look at the characters and put ourselves in their shoes. Like, how would we react? How would we feel? Where do I see myself in the story? Sometimes we have to take the story that Mark is telling us and we have to step into it. Well, the other thing that can be helpful for interpreting Mark's point, especially um, when we're dealing with a set of stories like this one, is, is to actually take a step back from the narrative. What I mean is to just back up and look at the broader context. Look at the series of stories all together. How are they similar? How are they different? Sometimes we have to step back and see that bigger picture, otherwise we're going to miss the point, we're gonna miss the theme that Mark is really getting at throughout a particular passage. If we, don't, if we don't step back and do that, it can be easy to miss the point, it can be easy to just see what we wanna see and just always what we've been taught to see as we kinda have a laser focus on the minutia of the passage. And we're gonna miss the new thing that God is looking to teach us through this passage that we're looking at. Now, this morning, as we actually step back from these three passages that we're looking at, if you, and actually, again, from chapter two in general, the theme that we see strung together is, is conflict with Jesus. Areas where people have come up against him and they have completely missed the point of what he's trying to do. 
and that results in this tension. It's places where people have missed the forest for the trees, where they've been distracted by their traditions and their preconceived notions, and they've missed what God was up to. The implication is this. Let's pay attention. Let's make sure that we're not missing the point in the same way or in different ways. So this morning, is we're going to look at these three stories. We're going to look at verses uh, 18 to 22, which forms kind of the first uh, story, and then 23 to 28, which is the second, and then we're going to close with the first six verses of chapter 3. And in these three stories, we're going to see that Jesus' critics miss three particular things. First, they were distracted by rituals, and they missed God's presence in verses 18 to 22. Second, they missed that rest is all about enjoying God's provision in verses 23 to 28. And then third, they missed that true religion isn't about power, it's about people. All right, so let's dive into that first set of stories in chapter 2, in verses 18 to 22. So when we look at verse 18... Um, we see that Mark sets up the story and gives us this backdrop that at the time it was common for religious disciples to fast. John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees seem to do it regularly. Now we don't know exactly why John's disciples were fasting. Um, Some have suggested that it was a sign of mourning or prayer related to John's imprisonment or his death. Um, But Mark doesn't really tell us. He just tells us that the disciples were doing it. Um, For the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees, it's likely that the fasting that Mark is referencing was a voluntary bi-weekly fasting that had become customary. It was an expression of their own piety. It was self-consecration before God. In both cases, it wasn't that the fasting was actually a requirement of the Old Testament law. Um, There was actually, in the Old Testament, there was only one fast that was mandated for, for all of Israel, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But the point here that, um, that Mark seems to be getting at in verse 18 is that we have two groups of holy people that people might have looked to or respected, and they were both voluntarily fasting. It was a part of the regular practice of their faith. And yet, apparently Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. And so for some, that begged the question, why? Like, why are you doing things differently? And in verse 18, we read that people asked um, that exact question. said, why don't you guys fast? Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? Now, it's not exactly clear to us who these questioners were. Based on the rest of the passage uh, this morning, it might be easy to assume that they were the Pharisees themselves because the Pharisees are present in the other stories and they tend to be accusers of Jesus. Um, But Mark actually doesn't say that here. He just says, some people came to Jesus. And so this question that we have this morning in this, in this story is possibly just an honest inquiry. Like, okay, you're doing things differently than this other group of holy people. Now, why is that? Um, but given the context uh, in chapter two with the surrounding stories, it probably does have at least a little bit of an edge to it. Like a little bit of accusation underneath it. Like how can we take you seriously when clearly good people fast regularly? Well, Jesus' Jesus' response to the question um, comes in the form of an analogy, and we read it uh, in verse 19. He says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, weddings, both today and in the first century, 
were meant to be a time of joy. They're meant to be a time to celebrate. Uh, lots of music, lots of food, lots of festivities. Contrast that with fasting, which is a somber, private expression of mourning and prayer. It's totally a totally different posture and would be totally out of place at a wedding. Like, can you imagine you get an invitation to a wedding, you got the little RSVP card and you're looking at it, and you're like, hmm, uh, chicken or beef? Uh, chicken or beef? Nope, I'll go with option number three, fasting. Like, nobody would do that, right? It just doesn't make sense. The comparison that Jesus is drawing here is that just like a wedding, now is not the time for his disciples to fast. Now is the time for his disciples to enjoy his presence, to celebrate with him. Just like a group of young men who are celebrating with their friend who has found the girl of their dreams. Fasting wouldn't only be inappropriate in the context of a wedding, in some cases it actually might be offensive. Like, what, our food isn't good enough for you? Now, obviously, Jesus is not unilaterally saying that the ritual of fasting no longer has any value. And we can tell that because of the statement that follows in verse 20, where he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. He's just challenging his critics to think about why the ritual exists in the first place. Rituals and routine, they can be good and helpful, but they have their time and they have their place. For everything, there is a season. In so many ways, um, the rituals, the disciplines that we have in, in the Christian faith, reading scripture, prayer, communion, and even fasting, they occupy this very useful space in, in our faith. They are valuable tools in pursuit of the Lord, and they help us to foster a relationship with him. And this repetition and routine that we use, that can actually um, be an important part of fostering that connection. I mean, think about it this way. If we have a good relationship with our earthly parents, it's probably because of their faithful, repeated presence in our lives over the years. But we must remember that rituals are a means to an end, and they're not the end in and of themselves. The end is relationship, God's presence in our lives. At various points in my adult life, I've spent uh, extended times away from home. You know, whether it was for the year at Bible school or I've gone um, co-op terms that were, you know, at a distance, these sorts of things. Um, one fall, I spent four months in Colorado. And during that time, I had a routine, uh, a ritual, if you will, of calling my parents every week. And the purpose of that weekly phone call was for us to stay connected to main some sort of a relationship, even though um, we weren't physically present with each other. We wanted to remain present in each other's lives in at least some sense. Now, one week, they actually came out to Colorado to visit in person. Now, do you think that week we had our phone call? No, of course not. It would make no sense to have done that. The phone call was just a means to an end to maintain that connection. But once we had the physical presence of each other, the, the phone call became meaningless. The weekly ritual made little sense to continue. In fact, um, the phone call would have probably caused us to miss out on the joy of actually being together. And this is really all Jesus is trying to communicate in the response to his questioners. Why don't my disciples fast? Well, it's because if they're distracted by that ritual, they're going to miss out on my presence. If they focus on the means, they will miss the end. Because if you fast during a wedding, you'll miss the celebration. And then he 
goes on and he reinforces it with just a couple more parables. Probably ones that are familiar, um, a familiar passage of scripture to, to many of us. Just like fasting doesn't go with a wedding, a new patch doesn't go on an old garment. And new wine can't go into old wineskins, he says. Now, at their basic level, following this interaction about fasting, these two parables, they're probably just a couple more examples of things that don't mix, like things that don't fit, that don't make sense. It's not fitting to sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because it's going to shrink and tear, and in trying to fix the garment, you're just going to end up destroying it. And if you put new wine into old wineskins, the wine ferments, and it will expand, and it will burst the skins, right? The old leather will be too brittle to stretch with it, and in trying to contain the new wine and do something useful, you're going to burst the skins, you're going to lose that wine. These things just don't mix, like fasting, and d just doesn't really jive with a wedding. But there also seems to be a little bit of a deeper level with these analogies, because both of them highlight the dangers of mixing the old and the new. And it seems to be speaking to what Christ is trying to accomplish on earth. It's something new. And if we cling too tightly to our old forms and our old habits, our old way of doing things, we're going to miss the entirely new thing that Jesus is doing. In the context of first century Judaism, it was clinging too tightly to those old traditions that the rabbis were teaching them. But maybe for us here, in 21st century, it looks slightly different. Like, what are we clinging to that's, that's holding us back from enjoying what God is trying to do in our lives? In some sense, Jesus is the new wine that can't be contained by the old, brittle, rigid wineskins. And he's not just a new patch to add on to what is already there. In the first century and today, he's trying to usher in an entirely transformed situation, an entirely new way of thinking into our hearts and minds, a new way forward. And if we reflect on those verses, I think it begs the question for all of us, like where are we letting our routine distract us from a real and meaningful relationship with the Lord? Where are we so used to going through the motions that we've confused the means that we use the rituals and disciplines of our faith with the ends that we are pursuing, the presence of Christ in our lives? Where have we fallen into the trap of, well, this is, just, this is just what we do, or this is the way that it's always been? Because the disciplines of the Christian life, they're meant to be more than that. They're meant to be tools by which we worship the Father, connect with the Spirit, and become more like his Son. But part of being human means we walk that thin line between life-giving, meaningful ritual and stagnant routine. And again, it's not about abandoning these things. Like, we are going to keep continuing to meet together on Sunday morning. We're not going to give up on that. We're going to keep reading scripture. We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep taking communion. Because these things are meaningful. But it's about making sure that we consciously remind each other and remind ourselves that ultimately the, these things are are not the end in and of themselves. They are meant to lead us to a person. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he responded to his questioners. Don't be so distracted by rituals that you miss out on God's presence. So that's the first story. And then we move into this second story in verses 23 to 28. And again, this has the same sort of structure. It has kind of a setup and a question, and then Jesus' response. 
if you kind of look over these passages and you look at the length of the passages and the similarity in how they're kind of put together, this is one of the reasons we know that Mark has probably redacted them and stuck them together and kind of tried to form them up into the same rhythm and flow. And so he sets up this story in verse 23. Uh, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And then the next verse, um, in the next verse, the question comes. And this time, we know exactly who's asking the question. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So in the, in the questions about fasting in the first five verses, you could almost read that questioning as an honest inquiry. The tone was kind of muted. Um, here, though, it is absolutely clear that the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus and his disciples. They are upset because in their view, the disciples are violating the Sabbath law. They are picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees interpret this as work, particularly as harvesting. Now, it's worth pointing out that this was more than just a, rab a rabbinic tradition that the Pharisees had developed over, over the years. Um, Old Testament law does explicitly call for um, harvesting to be left out of the Sabbath. It does call for rest from harvesting. Um, but the Pharisees do appear to have taken this to a whole new level, where they've basically interpreted the equivalent of you hiking, you know, on a Sunday with your family and picking berries to snack on as, as harvesting. Like, maybe a little bit of an extreme. Now, from Mark's account, Jesus doesn't opt to actually engage the Pharisees on that technicality. Like, he doesn't argue with them whether or not what the disciples are doing is actually harvesting. In fact, his response almost grants it. He's like, okay, fine, they're harvesting the grain in some sense. But there's more going on here, he says. Some things are more important, and you're missing the point. And he responds by giving them an example from the Old Testament when David actually seems to have broken uh, the Old Testament law as well in favor of finding food, just like the disciples were doing. This is a story of David and his companions, and it comes from 1 Samuel 21. The priest gave them the bread that, under strict interpretation of the Old Testament law, was not meant for commoners. It was meant for the priests only. But Jesus is saying, look, like, David did this. You respect David, right? And so at least there's, pres there's precedence for contravention of a particular law in favor of a higher priority, namely to eat. But the key to Mark's point in recounting this whole episode actually comes after the initial response from Jesus. It comes in verses uh, 27 to 28, which read like this. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Man, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in just those two verses in and of themselves. Um, but Darcy didn't give me two verses this morning. He gave me 18. So we're not going to plumb the depths of those two verses. Um, so perhaps your homework is to, just, is to ponder those this week with your missional family or in your sacred communities. But in keeping with the theme this morning, we will pick up on what, what did the Pharisees miss here? So just like with the fasting, where Jesus' critics were distracted by rituals and they missed God's presence, here the Pharisees have missed the point that rest isn't only about restraint. Rest is about celebrating God's provision. See, the Old Testament practice of the Sabbath is 
rooted in the sovereignty of God and his provision to his people. It's meant to be this weekly reminder that it's, it's okay to take a breath because God has us. He has us in his hand and he will provide for us. We don't have to grind and grind and grind until there's nothing left because his eye is on the sparrow and we know that he watches us. So on the one hand, this practice of the Sabbath was about knowing that it was, it's okay to take a rest. It's okay to pause. And in a sense, it's actually an act of worshiping God because we're saying to him, you are enough for us. But on the other hand, I think the Sabbath was, was just yet another way that God was actually providing for the needs of his people. It was another way that he was demonstrating that he knows how he built us. He knows what we need in our lives. Because it's not only that we, we should stop and smell the roses because we can, but we should take a break because we need to. I mean, this is something that we all kind of understand intuitively, and our own Canadian laws recognize it, right? Like employers are, are required to give their employees a break after so many days of working. It's just not healthy or safe to keep going and going and going. So we see this in the Sabbath laws for Israel as well, that they were meant to give people this opportunity to enjoy God's goodness, but also to have the rest that they need. But again, the Pharisees had become so restrictive in their interpretation of their lo- the laws that their traditions had just become another burden to bear. It was more work to do. And Jesus corrects them by saying, guys, you're missing the point. This isn't just about obeying a whole bunch of rules. The Sabbath is a gift from God because he knows you, because he loves you. He knows what you need and he wants you to rest in his sovereign goodness. And then the story ends with this poignant phrase in verse 28. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The point here is that Jesus' lordship extends over everything, even into the interpretation and the application of the Old Testament law. The Pharisees and the scribes wanted to set themselves up as an authority, but they're not the authority. Jesus is. He is Lord over everything, even over the things we hold most tightly and even over the spaces where we want to retain control. The question for us this morning is, is he our Lord? And is he our Lord even over our times of rest and rejuvenation and recreation? Because, you know, in our current cultural moment, like, I don't think we're as prone to the Pharisees' error in this passage with the Sabbath. You know, like, now perhaps for some, this whole concept of the Sabbath is even a little bit foggy because the Sabbath in its formal sense is not a Christian concept, it's a Jewish concept. And really, a general respect for Sunday or the Lord's Day is our, is our closest parallel to this formal idea of a Sabbath. But we're not in a time where there are strict rules and norms and people are walking around to make sure you're not working on a, on a Sunday, right? At least, you know, businesses aren't closed like they used to be. You know, it's, it's just different in our time. Like, perhaps the only thing we really have is this gentleman's understanding that, like, you don't mow your lawn or use power tools on a Sunday. Or maybe it's just a weekly enforced, by, uh, a weekly enforced bylaw. But even then, really, like, our culture has shifted on this one hasn't it? But I still think we, we kind of all understand that this concept of Sabbath and rest is a good one. It's wise, it's helpful, it's enjoyable to have a rhythm of rest built into our lives. So I think the question still remains, is Jesus Lord of our Sabbath? 
The Pharisees missed the point on one end of the spectrum, but do we miss it on the other? Have we taken our freedom to the point where we don't, we don't rest at all? Like, sure, we might not be working for a paycheck on Sunday afternoons, but is our calendar so full and our to-do list so controlling that we are forgetting to pause and trust God's provision at any point in our weeks? Or have we taken our freedom so far to the point where our rest is really just about checking out and escaping instead of taking the opportunity for being refreshed in God's presence, for refocusing and rejuvenation? Is it about just doing what we want instead of thanking God for providing what we need? This one is really tricky. <laughs> and I believe it's something that we all have to just like work out before the Lord on our own. I want to be really, really careful to not just like swing back the pendulum to where the Pharisees were at. Because some of us really need the encouragement today. Like, you have freedom. You have freedom. It's not about these rules. And this summer, yeah, I built a patio table and chairs and a bench on a Sunday. And I probably mowed my lawn. Don't tell my neighbors. But I feel confident before the Lord on these things for a, a variety of reasons that I won't get into this morning. But I know that there were other times where I just checked out in front of a screen and it didn't feel too healthy. In some ways, Christ really simplified things when he put the Pharisees in their place in Mark chapter 2. He freed us from this complicated system of traditions and restrictions and intricate laws and replaced it with this life by the Spirit where we discern together with him and with each other how to apply these principles to our lives. There's freedom and there's simplicity in that. But a wise man once told me, sometimes simplicity can get complicated. Sometimes there's part of me that just wants a rule, you know, a clear boundary. But the boundary we have before the Lord is this in verses 27 and 28. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so we continually work out these things before the Lord. I know I do at least. Because back and forth the pendulum can swing. But I want Jesus to be my Lord, even on my days off. Because I don't want to miss the point. I don't want my rest to be about restriction and rules. But I also don't want it to be about abusing his permission. I want it to be about celebrating his provision. And that brings us to the final short story in our passage this morning. At the start of Mark chapter 3. Where Jesus critics have now forgotten that religion isn't about power, it's about people. This story also occurs on the Sabbath, uh, and the story has a similar yet different structure compared to the first two that we've looked at. As you read over this one, you can see how it is sort of the climax of the series of stories that Mark has been telling um, in really the whole of chapter 2. The tension in the story is more pronounced. The emotions are running hotter and the response is more dramatic. And it, again, it starts with a setup, um, just kind of an explanation of the context. But then when it comes to the question, it's not Jesus being questioned, it's actually him doing the questioning. And the response actually starts with a lack of one. It's silence. So here we find Jesus back in the synagogue. And Mark tells us that there was a man there with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are there too. And Mark tells us this time, they are watching Jesus closely to see what he does. They are looking for an opportunity to accuse him. They're waiting to see if Jesus is going to heal this man with the withered hand. 
They know he can do it. But healing isn't a, isn't a, or sorry, but healing a non-life-threatening injury like this withered hand on the Sabbath, it was a Sabbath violation, again, according to their tradition. Now, they had granted in their tradition that, okay, it's definitely okay to heal somebody if it's life-threatening on a Sabbath. That's legitimate. You can save a life. But the withered hand, that can wait until tomorrow. And in fact, in a similar situation recounted in Luke, apparently this wasn't the only time that this sort of thing had happened on the Sabbath. But in that case, the ruler of the synagogue actually says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now in Mark, um, the ruler of the synagogue, the Pharisees, they haven't said anything. But Jesus knows what is going on in their minds. And he brings this man with a withered hand up in front of everyone, and he poses this rhetorical question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He's challenging their interpretation of the law. The implication of his question is, is quite clear. Like in their traditional interpretation, again, they've granted that it's okay to save a life on the Sabbath. And here he's saying, well, it's the same thing with healing. He's saying to let this man go one day longer with a withered hand would, you could argue, be doing harm. And it's not okay to do harm on the Sabbath. This same story or similar ones in, that are told in, in Luke and in Matthew, um, they, they have various different analogies that Jesus will kind of tack on to, uh, to his challenge of the Pharisees. Um, and in Matthew, Jesus uses this comparison. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And then in Luke, when they oppose the healing of a woman on a Sabbath, Jesus outright calls them hypocrites because they've completely missed the point. They've missed the point of this person right in front of them that Jesus is ready to restore and heal. Here in, Mark, here in Mark, he just includes Jesus' response, or he, he includes the response to Jesus' rhetorical question as just silence from the Pharisees. They don't say anything. They don't want to debate him. They didn't want to lean into the question and learn from him. They just retreated back and they watched in judgment. And then we read in verse 5, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, anger is rarely attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, there's perhaps only one or two stories where um, that, you know, they come to mind and we think of Jesus as being angry. Like, probably one of them is when he turns the tables in the, in the temple, Right? Like, that's the one that always comes to my mind. It's probably because that's the one I always saw portrayed in the passion plays that my dad used to direct. But this one here in Mark chapter 2, like, this is a powerful scene. Um, particularly when you read similar accounts from other gospel writers. Jesus is upset here. He's angry. But he's also deeply saddened. It's like the response of a father in defense of his children. He's looking at this man with a withered hand who's probably been like that for sometime. And he's looking at him with care and compassion, desiring physical restoration for him. And yet, on the other hand, he sees these religious elites thinking only about the minutia of their interpretation of Old Testament law. They've completely missed the point. 
for all that they know about God, for all that they know about the scriptures, about his self-revelation through his written word, they have entirely missed his heart. William L. Lane writes it this way, in their concern for legal detail, they had forgotten the mercy and grace shown by God to man when he made provision for the Sabbath. In the name of piety, they had become insensitive to both the purposes of God and to the sufferings of men. Like the irony of this whole story in the first six verses of chapter three, the irony is palpable. In their attempt to obey God and to keep his statutes, they had deeply disappointed him. Here they are, the defenders of God's law, agreeing that it's okay to save a life on the Sabbath, but they're saying that Jesus can't heal anyone. And then look at what they do in verse six. They turn around and they start plotting to destroy Jesus on the very same day. Like, nice work, guys. You really nailed the spirit of the law on that one. You can't heal a hand, but apparently on the Sabbath, plotting murder is always an option. After Jesus heals the man, the Pharisees go out and they hold counsel with this group called the Herodians. And the interesting thing is these Herodians, like, we don't actually really know who they are. Like, they're only mentioned a couple times in uh, New Testament uh, in the New Testament scriptures. And then outside of scripture, there's only one ancient source that uses the word. So we don't know a ton about them, but the assumption is based on the name and the context that these guys were influential men that were loyal to Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of, Ga of Galilee at the time. Uh, and Galilee was a client state of Rome. So what this means is the Herodians were likely a, just a political group who were supportive of the enemies of the Jews, the Roman occupation, upon which Herod's rule depended. So when Jesus challenges the status quo of the Pharisees, they retreat in silence, they refuse to be changed by Jesus' compassion, and then they go out and they rally with Roman sympathizers. The concept here is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Both groups saw in Jesus a threat to their power, but true religion isn't about power. It's about people. James 1 verse 27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Of the three misses by Jesus' critics in our passage this morning, this one is the most spectacular. Like I look at this and think, man, they were so blind to what was going on. To them, obedience to their traditions, to their way of thinking, to their particular interpretation of scripture, to their position of power, like all of this is more important to them than a broken man before them. For as much effort as these men would have put into understanding God and to following his precepts, it is amazing to me how far they ended up from his heart. But if I have one ounce of humility... I might pause and ask myself the same question. Where am I doing the same? Where am I more concerned about rules and routine and the status quo than I am about relationship? Where does my practice of faith resemble a checklist of things to do to impress God and others or to feel good about myself rather than a list of God's people to care for? Where am I more concerned about knowing things about God rather than following his heart? And for me, these adventures in missing the point that we've been looking at this morning, 
they kind of hit close to home because it's part of my story and I, I doubt that I'm alone. Um, last week at our missional family, uh, one of our members was sharing a little bit about his, his story. And he was joking around about how growing up in the church, he had a, a pretty boring testimony. You know, it wasn't that exciting. Born and raised in a Christian home, accepted Jesus at a young age, no major rebellious phases, anything like that. We chuckled as he said, there used to be a time where, you know, he wished he did drugs or something like that. So his story was a little bit more radical. And I can kind of identify with that. My upbringing was fairly similar, which of course I, I know, now know has huge blessings in it. I didn't have these stories of wild rebellion. I was generally a pretty good kid. Um, but upon reflection in my late teen years and my early 20s, um, I realized that this relative goodness in my life, like it came with its own set of challenges. Part of my story is the same struggle as the Pharisees. I had this intense proclivity towards people-pleasing and performance. And that translated into how I related to God. It was about being a good Christian, whatever that was, and doing all the good things that a, a good Christian should do. And in the meantime, I often missed the true nature of God's heart. Reading, prayer, Bible study, these things were all derived in huge part from a need to feel good about how good I was and to impress God. And you see, the thing is, I got so much positive reinforcement from those around me. Like, I was, I was a great kid, you know? Oh, look at how he memorizes scripture. Look at how much he knows. Look at his leadership at camp and at, at youth group. And I don't think it's hard to see that that all went to my head. Like, it, it was, sure, it was all mixed with this honest desire to follow the Lord, um, but it was this underlying self-righteousness, this pride, this sense of achievement, and criticism of others who didn't express their faith in the same fashion a lack of grace for those who were in a different place. In so many ways, I was missing God's heart. In so many ways, I was without love. And in hindsight, I can see that at times, I was the resounding gong, the clanging symbol of 1 Corinthians 13. My sin often looked like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, rather than the, the younger one. And so when I come to a passage like Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of Mark 3, like ours this morning, where I see people resistant to Jesus, blind to what he's doing, completely miss the point, I can't help but see myself there. I can't help but fear those dangers because I've missed it before and I don't want to miss it again. And perhaps this morning you, you feel the same way. Maybe that's a part of your story as well. And if, if it is, then hear this encouragement. On that day in the synagogue, Jesus was not only looking to restore the man with the withered hand, the man that so obviously needed his power on that day. He was also filled with love towards his religious critics. Because yes, chapter 3, verse 5 says that Jesus was angry, but it also says that he was grieved. He was distressed. He was saddened. After all, he knew that even though they were plotting to kill him, he would go to that cross for them too. Even though they had missed the point so far, he was ready to give them his presence his provision, and he was ready to make them his people. This past week, Sharice uh, and I had Twyla and Crystal uh, over uh, to our place for dinner one evening, and we were chatting a little bit about this passage as I was preparing for my sermon. And Twyla uh, had been doing some reading as well, and she shared um, something interesting that she had learned when she was studying about uh, the parable of the wineskins. 
Um, depending on your translation, uh, if you look in that verse, uh, the word that gets used for the, the new wineskins isn't actually new, it's, it's fresh. Fresh is used to describe those wineskins in the parable. Um, this, uh, this may be because fresh wineskins, um, as opposed to new, like not newly made ones, fresh wineskins could have been ones that were old ones that had been reconditioned. The wineskins were made of leather, and if, you, um, if you've ever had leather products in your house at all, you'll, you might know that they can be restored a little bit, right? Once they've kind of dried out, started to become brittle, they can be reconditioned. I know I made a habit of doing this when, with my leather blundstones, right? When they start to show cracks, I would rub mink oil on them, right? In a similar fashion, an old and tiring wineskin that is not ready to receive new wine, it can be cleaned and then soaked in oil. It can help, that can help to bring it back to this rejuvenated state where it is supple and soft and pliable, ready for new wine. Now, to be clear, that's not how Jesus was using the parable in, in Mark 2. Um, he wasn't applying it in that personal fashion. But I'm fairly confident that he would agree with the principle that I'm getting at here. That in the same way that wineskins and boots and other leather products, when they kind of age and they become brittle and maybe not as useful anymore, they don't necessarily need to be thrown away. But rather, they can be restored from their brittle state into a soft and flexible condition. And so, for us, if we've come to this place of brittle inflexibility, of missing the point like the Pharisees had, Jesus doesn't want to throw us away. He wants to gently recondition us, to transform our hearts and minds to align with his so that we are ready for the new things that he's going to do in and through us. God has long been in the business of transformation. Ezekiel says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We are not always going to get it right. Sometimes our routine is going to distract us from entering into his presence. Sometimes we're going to find it difficult to rest in his provision for us. And sometimes we're going to forget that this, everything we do, this is all about people. Sometimes we're going to be too rigid and we're going to miss the point. But God in his abundant grace became, became man to show us a better way. He died to demonstrate his abundant love. He rose in power to give us new life. And he gave us his spirit to guide and transform us and each other for company along the way. So together, let's enjoy his presence, let's celebrate his provision, and let's serve his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that when we have wandered far from you, you do not abandon us. When we have become too used to our routines and our rituals, and we have become brittle and inflexible to the things that you are trying to accomplish in and through us, that you do not say that we are not worth anything anymore but you're ready to work on us. You are ready to transform us. You are ready to heal us and move us closer to your heart. We thank you for that. We trust in that. We pray that you would help us to not miss the point in everything that we are doing. We pray that you would help us to see the real meaning behind our routine, the purpose behind our rituals. We wouldn't make it about checking a list, um, but we would make it about meeting a person. Lord, we submit to you as Lord over, over everything in our lives this morning.
pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.